Get up, everybody, get off your ass. We got to do something, and we got to do it fast. Cause the people are hungry, starving, and the fuel is low. Don't wait for Jesus, he ain't coming back no more. Stand up and be strong. And that's what we try to do in Chicago, where we bring you another edition of the Live from the Heartland show. This is Michael James. I'll be flying solo for the first part of the show. Uh, Katie actually had a plan to uh, be away all day tomorrow working on some important uh, police community relations. And because of that, we usually record on a Friday. She was not going to be there, but she might join us later because we decided to do it on a Thursday. So we're here with another edition of the Live from the Heartland show. It's Heartland at Home number 74 since the pandemic began. It's for the week of October 23rd. And today we're gonna to welcome Susan Klonsky to talk on the legacy of the late Timuel Black. And first we're gonna go coast to coast with Gordon Thompson in Newark, Delaware and Adam James in somewhere in California near Los Angeles with a live from the Heartland Sports Report. Um, usually we do a little bit of what went good in our lives during the week. And I'm gonna share with you that uh, some of you know, if you've watched regularly or we run into each other in other places that I did take a fall and messed up my rotator cuff while I was setting up my front porch gallery at the end of July. And for the first time since then, I did set up the Prairie Dancer Front Porch Gallery on Sunday, had a number of people come by, sold some pictures, had some great discussions with people in the neighborhood. It was good. Uh, little things people should pay attention to. Some good news here is one of our environmental champions, Deborah Shore, who has taught us so much about the protection of water while she has been serving on the Cook County's Metropolitan Water Reclamation District, she is moving on up. She's got a new gig with the, as the Regional Administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. So congratulations to you, Deborah. You'll be doing a great job there, just like you've been doing all along. And we look forward to having you on the show again soon so you can fill us in on what it's like working to protect water on the federal level and other things too. Uh, and speaking of water, a number of you living in Rogers Park here in the 49th Ward know that it's been a little difficult getting through some alleys and streets, a lot of construction. And one of the places that was happening was in the alley between Morse and Lunt that also tees and runs east to Greenview, and that's my alley. And they built a new, what they call, I think, a green alley. So it's not only cement on top of all kind of gravel, but then bricks that are uh, that let water flow through it. There's a word for that. It's not coming right. Permeable. That's the word. And uh, it really looks great. And they just, uh, you know, I've been filming it and taking photographs for the last six weeks close to that. And uh, today I had a nice talk with a fellow from Naples who's been here 40 years, became a citizen. And uh, he was doing the finishing work. And when I came back from teaching my class downtown, the alley was open. It looks great. I should have a picture. Maybe we'll get one up. Um, 
Here in Illinois, uh, like in a lot of places, the uh, new congressional maps are being drawn and there's a lot of struggle, infighting and uh, actual gerrymandering of districts. In our own state, which uh, is controlled both in the governor and the House and the Senate by Democrats, they also gerrymander just the way in Republican states. And we're really for a fairer map. Uh, one of the things that Chicago is being challenged by the Republican, in Illinois, being challenged by the Republicans and Latino groups on the makeup of the new districts. One plan has 15 Democratic congressional seats and two Republican, another has 14 and three. Um, while I'd like to see the Democrats with a majority, I also think we need to hold out for a fairer process in determining how we elect our congressional uh, representatives that shape our democracy as it is and should be and hopefully will be. Okay, so let's move right along. Here in Chicago, we've still got an ongoing struggle between the police department, who happen to be the least vaccinated of all the city departments, and the mayor. The requirement is for all people to uh, fill a, go to a portal and fill out their vaccine status. Uh, a couple of days ago in the news, we had 67% of the police department have filed. Uh, and in that group, um, 21 have no pay status because they have not had their shots. Um, we'll know more about this. This is a struggle going on also in Los Angeles. Uh, and the biggest killer of police force members is COVID. COVID is responsible and we have this resistance. Kind of strange to me what's going on. Um, as we uh, go to uh, tape this show, uh, we notice that uh, no Republicans have budged on voting for the freedom to vote package that is before them in Congress. This is, a, this is in the Senate. This is quite uh, dismaying that uh, the Republican Party is so staunchly opposed to guaranteeing voting rights for millions and millions of Americans. It's a challenge and it's something we're going to have to deal with because the 2022 election is coming up and you know they're trying to steal it. So don't forget to vote, pay attention to the remapping and pay attention to the bills that go before Congress. And as Katie always said, contact your representatives and your senators. So do it. Okay, back to Chicago. The Black Caucus has urged the mayor, Mayor Lightfoot, to cancel the guaranteed minimum income plan and put that $31.5 million toward violence uh, prevention in primarily black wards. Well, we certainly wanna see some advancement on that front, but we also think that the question of uh, guaranteed minimum income is really crucial to the survival and the well-being of many in our community. Okay, so let me just say you are listening to the Live from the Heartland show here on 88.7, broadcast on Saturday mornings, nine to 10. You can get it worldwide at www.org and uh, stay tuned. We're going to hear a little tune from Muddy Waters, recorded live in Chicago, and we'll back. We'll be back with our first guest, coast to coast. We're going to have Gordon Thompson, the longtime track coach, who is in Newark, Delaware, and Adam James, 
who happens to be my cousin. I got to know him when he was here playing football at Northwestern. He came out of Hawaii. Uh, he's on the West Coast. So stay tuned. A Little Muddy Waters will be right back and ready to go talking sports. And then we'll get a little bit later to Sue Plonsky talking about Timmy Will Black. Be right back with more Live from the Heart Band. <laughs> Muddy Waters. We love you, Muddy Waters. And thank you for that music and inspiring us to go forward with a really detailed uh, Live from the Heartland sports report. Uh, we, as I said at the top of the show, we're going coast to coast. We've got uh, my cousin Adam, who I got to know real well when he came here to play football after playing at Punahou High School in Hawaii a few years back now. And my good partner and buddy, traveling buddy, uh, Gordon Thompson, who is a wonderful track coach and now a teacher back over there in his hometown of Newark, Delaware. So we got someone on the East Coast. We got someone right here in the center part and we got someone on the West Coast. So the three of us like to talk sports. We like to talk politics. We like to talk social justice. We see how they mix and they come together. Sports in many ways is a mirror of society. Those of us, those of the people who are out there who are critical of sports and then how much we love them really should grasp how much they indicate what's going on in the larger society. And they're kind of a mirror of what, what uh, many of us are involved with. So we're going to go back and forth, talk a little sports. And uh, let's start off with the wonderful victory by the Chicago Sky. I uh, came upon it. You know, we knew they were going to play. The next thing I know, I saw them playing. I watched every game until the end. Uh, it was great. And Gordo, you had a few things you wanted to share about some of the participants in that great uh, victory. I'm so fired up about one young lady, Candace Parker, who this is her first year playing for the Chicago Sky. Uh, many people don't know that she is uh, right from the suburbs of Chicago, Naperville Central High School, where she was the first um, uh, really, she was, well, first off, she was two-time Gatorade National Ch Player of the Year in high school. That's never happened for women. It's happened several times for guys, but it never happened for women of a two-time Player of the Year in high school. Hey, when she was in high school at Naperville Central, she visited DePaul University on a recruiting trip. And I was the track coach at DePaul at the time. And Doug Bruno, the women's coach, brought her over and had her speak with me because Candace Parker's favorite athlete in the world was the sprinter, Marion Jones. So I related a couple stories about Marion Jones before her positive drug test <laughs> to uh, Candace and just pretty much saying, hey, that is a great idol to have for a great uh, someone to look up to. Because on the track, Marion was 
really a super positive influence on her fellow competitors, the sport itself. She treated it well. I think she kind of got a black eye by testing positive at the wrong time, whereas many other athletes have tested positive and never got caught, Carl Lewis specifically. And uh, so she um, really during that visit to DePaul, she knew she wasn't going to go to Paul, but Doug Bruno really had to try so hard to get the best in the Chicago area. And um, she ended up at Tennessee. And at then Tennessee, she was the first woman to dunk in a collegiate game. Think about what that means to raise your body high enough where you could put the, the sphere of the basketball, which I'm not sure the, the radius or the, the, the circumference of it is, over 10 feet high so you got to elevate your body way off the ground women traditionally don't have enough physical power to body weight ratio to be able to do that candace does so there is something special really about candace parker being the first woman to dunk in college and then as a pro she was really uh she had her bread and butter at the la sparks for 13 years and two Olympic champions while at the LA Sparks, uh, two, the second woman to dunk in the women's NBA. And uh, then now with the sky year 2021, she killed it. She, she was the, the factor of that come for behind victory of 80 to 74 over the Mercury. But listen to what she said today in Twitter, Twitter about that winning championship. Here's a quote from Candace on Twitter today. Those Midwestern values, that grit, that grind, that blue collar work ethic. Yes. That was this team this year for the sky. That's what she said. That's what this, this year's team demonstrated. I love that about Candace to be able to bring what the Midwestern values of really, that's what we all enjoyed Adam and, and Michael. And when I was coaching at Loyal and DePaul, I love coaching the Midwestern people because of the, just the true blue work ethic, especially at Loyola. I really thrived over blue collar athletes. Well, let's give a shout out also to uh, a DePaul graduate, uh, Allie Quigley who uh, also was on the sky and uh, she played a good game too. And she had played four years at DePaul and you mentioned Doug Bruno. Uh, I was coming back from the marathon the other day where my daughter, no, not my daughter, my uh, son-in-law was running. I had three uh, family members running marathons. I had Casey Blue in Berlin. I had my uh, nephew-in-law in Boston and my son-in-law in Chicago. Anyhow, coming back from the Chicago Marathon last week, stopped for a little place at Archie's over on Loyola for a little food, and Doug Bruno walked by. And I hadn't seen Doug Bruno since he was on a plane coming from Seattle when the women's U.S. women's team had done a, uh, a game against the Japanese. And I had invited him to come on the radio show then, and I re-invited him the other day, and he's going to come on. So... We're going to talk women's basketball in the future on Live from the Heartland. Let's switch to baseball. Adam, you and I have been going back and forth about what teams we like, who we don't like, what the deal is. And you've done a lot of educating me about the scandal in baseball that involves the Red Sox and the Houston, what do they call, the Astros. Yes. So why 
Why don't well, you fill us in on that? Because uh, I was saying, oh, I like Dusty Baker. I like this player, you know, and I got to admit, since the White Sox were out, I don't really care that much. And I may move to the National League. But you talk about baseball for a minute, cousin. No doubt about it. Baseball is a spectacular game. Uh, it's a wonderful game with rich history and amazing characters and these teams that many of us grew up rooting for. Um, there's a nostalgia and an excitement um, whenever a baseball game is happening. You know, it was well documented what happened a few years ago with the trash can uh, cheating scandal with the Houston Astros and the current coach of the Boston Red Sox, Alex Mora's involvement. Trash can. What did they do? They hit the trash can. They signal what was heck the ball that was coming. It was a combination of old school trash can banging with new technology. They literally had a guy out in center field with uh, a telescope with binoculars, and he was watching the catcher doing his signals. He would then um, communicate with a guy literally in the hallway of the dugout, and they would be watching a monitor, and then they would um, bang the trash can according to what they felt was going to be that next pitch. So. It was well documented and it was terrible. And at the time, most baseball fans were livid. Uh, Major League Baseball made a very controversial decision and that was to sweep it all under the rug in an effort to move forward. The commissioner's goal was to say, you know, we've addressed it, it's been handled. Um, we wanna move on, you should too. Many fans, uh, especially fans of the Dodgers and the Yankees were not ready to do that because those are the two teams specifically that were definitely damaged, uh, the Oakland A's as well. Um, and so going into that next season here in New York, where I have a lot of family and friends, there was a lot of talk about the booing and the signs and every effort everybody was going to make to let them know. And then there was a worldwide pandemic. So everybody kind of forgot about what happened with the Houston Astros in the greater sports world. Diehard baseball fans were not ready to let it go. Uh, as fans came back to the stadiums, many still did trash cans and things like that to try to remind the Astros, but most casual fans are not aware or they've been caught up in the, the that is they just don't know about it. They just don't care enough. Well, uh, it reminds me of uh, the story I heard later in my life about Bobby Thompson hitting a home run off of Ralph Branca in the one game playoff between the Dodgers and the Giants in New York in 1951. And I was a kid at that game and I had never been to a Dodger game and Dodgers lost. I, I was a good luck charm, which I thought I was, uh, I was responsible when Bobby Thompson hit the home run and the Dodgers lost. I realized later uh, that I really had no control over that. And I did get to go to a Super Bowl where the Bears won in New Orleans, uh, but uh, it was revealed later that uh, they were stealing signs and signaling what was coming. So uh, thanks for bringing me up that childhood memory when I cried after the Dodgers lost. Michael, I think Dodgers you definitely should home. go into being a National League fan. And like uh, just now that the, the uh, White Sox are out of it and pay attention to what the Braves are doing, uh, because the Braves have a phenomenal chance to beat the Dodgers. I can't stand the Dodgers. It's the one because, and I don't know why, but it's, it's something about, I've always loved the San Francisco giants and it's something about that Dodgers and giants phenomenal rivalry that, but uh, it maybe it goes back to Tommy Lasorda, who I thought was a putz. And, uh, but I think that the, the national league has got some major and specifically the Atlanta Braves have got some serious, mojo going on right now 
Well, what, what do you think, it? Adam? It's three to one, right? Yes. We're, yes. We're, we're doing this on Thursday for Saturday broadcast and beyond. So we don't so know the actual outcome. By the time you're listening to this, that's right. <laughs> yeah, you'll know. <laughs> but what's really great about baseball is, again, that, that nostalgia and the excitement of the game. Um, it's so great to see baseball again. And, you know, hopefully that'll never happen again. Um, one of the things that we see time and time again with these large sports organizations is that they become bigger than the sport to a degree, bigger than the spirit of the sport to a degree. And evidence by that is um, what happened with Major League Baseball and also what's happening with the NBA and its relationships with international political powers. Speaking but, of the NBA, <laughs> talk to us about China and the NBA. Well, that was another thing that really, you know, concerned me greatly, you know, two years ago before the pandemic broke. Uh, was how the NBA and China handled, um, you know, the, the controversy of Daryl Morey's comment about the Hong Kong situation. And uh, although I don't know Daryl personally, he is also a Northwestern guy, the Wildcats. And, uh, you know, Daryl made what he thought was a kind of an innocent comment, I stand with Hong Kong, because he has some friends in Hong Kong. And he just at that time, as I understand it, didn't fully know the details of what was going on there. And when he made that comment, what he did was he infuriated the communist nation government. And they of course shut down all NBA telecasts in China for that entire year. They, they were livid. And they actually even said, we're gonna end all business relationship with the NBA. The NBA immediately cowered and said, no, no, we don't wanna lose your business. We wanna stay in good graces. It was very controversial how they handled it, but. Um, it, it's a difficult spot. And it comes back to what you started this whole show off with, Michael, and that is athletics and sports is oftentimes where politics and thoughts and ideas literally hit the ground. This is where people have to interact and get to know each other and, and deal with these kind of problems. Maybe China would not have gotten upset with, you know, people in America if we'd been criticizing them like that, except with these international superstars. And that brought up conversation and hopefully it'll bring up change. What's the latest Chinese thing, though? Didn't something just happen over? Someone came out and uh, defended Tibet. Well, the, the the center for the Celtics, who is a Turkish national, the center, he came out and said that uh, China is performing cultural genocide. Well, he forgets that United States had cultural genocide too, wiping out the American Indians. So we're guilty of the same thing. But the Tibet thing is pretty serious because. Uh, that is a very hot topic within the country, but uh, the bottom line is money. The dollars of, uh, there are millions of Kobe Bryant fans in the country of China, and the sport is incredibly popular with the whole country. Yes. So the streaming service that they use as now not going to broadcast any Celtics game because of this uh, comment by the Turkish center. Well, that guy has had his Turkish visa uh, taken away from him. He can't travel internationally now because he no longer has a visa to travel or a passport, a legal passport to travel. So it's it's affecting not just him personally uh, of him being able to return home and visit his family, but it's coming down to a big money thing with the NBA of how they're going to generate cash from the uh, citizens of China. Yes, and remember also with Cantor that he is, um, of course, a very vocal critic of the government of Turkey. And, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly impressed with him because he is a man who has stood his principles. He has taken on a tremendous amount of risk and danger, not only to himself, but his family as well. 
to speak what is you know his truth, what he has seen and what he's experienced and what he feels is wrong with his home country. Um, so it's interesting that he's also made these decisions to speak out about China and what's going on there. And you're absolutely right, Gordon. United States of America has a, has a terrible history with us as well. But I truly believe that we're moving in the right direction. We as a nation and we as a world. And sports is part of that. Sports is what brings us together. I truly believe that when, when China shuts down the NBA games in their nation, their people don't like it. And they want to watch their NBA games. And it continues yeah. to build that energy of let's come together. Let's, let's watch each other and enjoy each other's excellence. Well, you mentioned earlier that a guy who was a Northwestern grad uh, had been critical of the China over Hong Kong. And I uh, just want to reiterate that you had come from Hawaii to play football at Northwestern. And that's where we, we were cousins always since you were born. Uh, but we got to know each other and Gordon got to know you too. And Gordon actually used to be a track coach at, at Northwestern when they still had a track team. So let's just talk a little bit uh, briefly because we've got still a lot to cover with only so much time. Talk about Big Ten football, Northwestern in particular, since they're just up the road from where we're doing this recording, at least the central part of the country recording. And uh, both of you know some stuff about Northwestern, so fill us in. Adam, who do we, who's Northwestern play this weekend? Uh, well, it's a big game against the Big Blue up in Michigan, so that's going to be a tough challenge. But, uh, of course, I'm rooting for the Wildcats, and I believe they're going to win. Uh, you know, one of the great things about football in the Big Ten right now is it is really um, doing extremely well. Of course, we just had that huge game with Penn State and Iowa, and then a big upset with Purdue defeating Iowa. Now this weekend, we have, um, you know, major games going on again. So it's just amazing to see how well the Big Ten play is happening. It would be absolutely phenomenal for Northwestern to upset Michigan, rated sixth in the country. If there's one coach in the country that can do it, it's Pat Fitzgerald. I think he's a great coach. I really like him. And the other thing about an Illinois team is playing, University of Illinois is playing at Penn State, and they're ranked seventh. So it would be awesome for to get the two Illinois universities to beat the pants off of those two uh, Big Ten rivals that are ranked. Uh, go Wildcats. Yes, and go Big Ten. I, I, the one thing that we all Big Teners want to see is a Big Ten team winning the national championship. No more SEC teams winning the national championship. Let's well, I go got a problem with that, Adam, because I am a University of Florida graduate, so uh, I, I really like the SEC and all the stuff that goes yeah. on. It's, it is a dramatic conference. There's all kinds of drama going on every day. The oh. uh, LSU football coach getting fired on the spot because of what he happened last year. The guy is a creep. And then uh, that up what happened with um, the coach going back to Tennessee and how the Tennessee fans literally, you know, attacked the team and, and him with debris. And it was just a tremendous situation that happened there. Well, Gordon, one of the things you wanted to talk about was coaching longevity. What do you have on your mind about that? Well, I think that phenomenon of, of one coach staying at one institution for several decades continuously, that phenomenon is dead. That when I started coaching in the 19, mid 1980s, there were 30 schools across the country that had that one coach there for decades on end. University of Minnesota had Roy Griak, Indiana had Sam Bell. And uh, so there were just people that were entrenched and their personalities were the program. And the same thing in all sports, football, basketball, 
they had people that would stay there for longer than 10 years. Well, now the fan base has become so involved and so, and their opinions do matter that any Joe Schmo off the feet off the street is has a a viewpoint that's critical and it with social media it hits home with the with the head coach and they constantly get berated constantly get pulled down and then the administration starts to listen to it and they put pressure on these coaches hey maybe it's time to step aside maybe it's time for a younger person to get a hold well yeah. what are the values of education what are the values of having one person lead and have these values transcend through generations that is a very important these values that these master coaches and pat fitzgerald is one yeah. master coaches that impart into their student athletes and they got to transcend just more than one generation to have continuity and to have what a really a university stands for so yeah. i think that the ability of these social media to ha constantly hammer the administration Adam, what do you think? Well, I agree. And it's it's great to see longevity with a person like Pat Fitzgerald. He's done a tremendous job. It, it is rare in today's uh, sports world. And it's important to note that how that affects longtime career growth and development for the men and women who enter coaching as a profession. Uh, a lot of times in today's society, in today's world, there's, there's a lack of security for them, a constant feeling of, you know, am I going to get fired next month, next year? Um, so there is a certain amount of hot potato going on with coaches and universities as far as, you know, who the current uh, coach is, where they're going next. I will say also, though, I, I am a big believer in um, the young generation coming up of coaches. I, I love seeing young coaches get opportunities and do well and even fail because the failures are where we learn and grow and, and hopefully they'll come back and do better in other things. But of course, we all know diversity in, in all things is important and coaching is one that we need to see more diversity. Okay, I'm going to fire a few questions at you. I got someone over here reminding me how much time I've got left. So let's do a quick thing with the NBA on compliance versus resistance, jab versus no jab, whether it's coaches, players, or whatever. Who got something on that? Well, I really appreciated what Kareem Abdul-Jabbar said the other day when he said, if you're still doing your research, you've done no research at all. And he also emphasized that, you know, everybody talks about sacrifice for the team and what you need to do to, to pull together and make it happen. This is in many ways, whether you're against it for whatever reason, this is an example of an opportunity to sacrifice for the team and come together for the greater good. As many people have said, you're not getting vaccinated for yourself, you're getting vaccinated for others. Gordon, talk to us a little bit. Of, go ahead. You have something on that? Yeah, I'm disappointed in the Washington State University coach who had to uh, be relieved of his duties because he refused to get vaccinated. Adam's exactly right. When you're in a position within a team, you sacrifice your individual right. You have got to give up for the team. He was selfish. That guy was and he claimed it was on. He didn't want the vax for religious reasons. Well, it went up in front of a panel and they shot that down, that it was bogus, his religious his religious uh, exemption. So you know, he was just pretty much uh, being selfish for personal reasons. And when you're around eight, 115 or 125 other men and then the other staff, the athletic trainers, the cheerleaders, the administration, you have got to give something up of yourself and conform to make yourself viable in today's society. 
He yeah. gave up his right to coach. And he really sacrificed financially himself, too. I, I will just add real quickly, I, I don't know Nick Rolovich personally, but I have a lot of deep connection to him. I, I grew up in Hawaii. Um, June Jones is a big part of the football scene there, and I have a lot of mutual friends. Um, so when Nick did this, it was obviously incredibly disappointing for so many because, you know, he had an opportunity. And the one thing that I would say about that is that he's an employee, just as in many ways the football players are. The football players every day, they go out there, they're in danger. As a coach, he's not. This is the one area where he is endangered and he could endanger others. So it's a, to me, it's just kind of surprising that he took that stance and now is lashing out at the only Asian American athletic director in a power five school and saying that that person was being discriminatory and vindictive in trying to get him to get vaccinated. It's the whole thing is just very odd. Gordon, let's take it to the uh, National Football League. And you talked about, uh, I've seen it in the news, but I don't really understand it. It's race normal policy for compensation in the NFL. Michael, you got to read up on this and everyone really has got to read up. This is an absolute monumental case. The, the NFL basically had two different uh, schemes for post-concussion protocol. One was for the African-American players and another one was for everyone else, the white guys and and everybody else. So they based of what you had a concussion or if you did not uh, have the the effects of a concussion based on the intelligence scores of uh, African-Americans versus whites. And they weren't real intelligence scores. They were perceived intelligence scores based on this race norm. Well, the NFL bought into it. What this one lawyer did 10 years ago was absolutely criminal. And he now admits it was absolutely wrong. And he's apologized to all the NFL players. Hey, there is over 2,000 retired NFL players vying to get some money from the NFL based on post-concussion protocol. They have not been paid. A few African-Americans have since died while the, over this past 10 years. They cannot receive the compensation that the NFL should be getting them. So the NFL was sued by this gentleman, Ken Jenkins. Ken Jenkins should go down in history as a monumental uh, fighter for the rights of NFL players. And he is he filed a uh, through the Department of Justice that he filed and asked them to investigate. The DOJ did investigate and found the NFL guilty of this two-tier system that was race-based. So absolutely criminal. Hey, this goes back to United States history, back to 1857, the Dred Scott case in the Supreme Court, where... uh, the Supreme Court justice says that, no, you're not a United States citizen because you are an ancestor of African. So you are not a real United States citizen. You have no rights. That's the same thing of, uh, over 100 years ago. Yes. America, grow up. Yeah. Uh, we're going we're gonna to have to end. But just speaking of uh, Africa, uh, I don't know if you know this, either of you know, there was a, an unfortunate death of an upcoming Kenyan marathoner, a woman. Anyone got that on that, her name? 
Yeah, uh, she's uh, an Olympic medalist, a silver medalist, and unfortunately, it looks like a uh, domestic abuse case where her husband uh, stabbed her to death. It, it's a really a crying shame. She was the breadwinner of their family. Uh, she, she, her husband is unemployed, living in Eldoret at altitude in the Rift Valley, where all the great Kenyan distance runners evolved from, and uh, it's just. A, a real, real shame that uh, Miss Kiprop has succumbed to domestic violence. Well, I want to thank both of you guys. I love you both, and I learn a lot from both of you, and I like hanging out with both of you, whether it be in Zoom or in person. Uh, and we both, uh, all of us are in Athletes United for Peace, and the president of Athletes United for Peace, Dave Megacy, who is quite a heroic sports figure, is turning 80 next week, and I'm going to go out there to uh, somewhere on an island outside of Seattle, the Puget Sound, and uh, Katie wants me to try to do the show from there, yes. so maybe we'll have Megacy on next week. You guys were really enlightening, uh, inspirational, and uh, you're my two favorite sports reporters now. Hey, so Michael, give uh, give Megacy a bear hug from Adam and myself. And uh, Megacy is just absolutely one of the more phenomenal guys in the world of sports. Writing, writing that book that overturned the NFL out of our league. Wait, when was that written, Michael? Uh, it had to be around 77. I don't know for sure. Yeah. Is that what, Kay? 74, maybe. Anyhow, um, <laughs> Uh, this was good, and uh, I had something else I wanted to say, but I just lost it, so that's the way it goes, and uh, we'll be back with you guys talking more sports as the sports world evolves and continues to give us stuff to talk about, so thank you very much, and uh, all power to the people. Adios, Chicago. Okay. All right, we'll see you. Now, stay tuned, everybody. We'll be right back with our next guest, Susan Klonsky, talking about uh, Timuel Black, uh, before that, we're going to listen to a little bit of Savior Pass Me Not by the Swan Silvertones. Be right back with more Live from the Heartland. Oh, pass oh, pass me.
Swan Silvertones. I love that group. I love those tunes. I first heard the Swan Silvertones uh, when I was 13 at Madison Square Garden. And, uh, and at the beginning of the show, we said Katie wouldn't be with us today because she has usually record on Friday morning and she's doing political work or community work tomorrow. So we recorded today and that means she became available. So we're gonna have Katie Hogan here with us. And now we welcome our good friend, Susan Klonsky, and she's gonna share with us some stories, information about the wonderful nice. late Timuel Black who just passed away this past week. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to you, Susan Klonsky. Hi guys, good to see you. Hey guys. You just what? Good I to said, good to see you. Uh, good to see you as well. Um, Michael, you and uh, Susan go back further than I do, so maybe you should. Well, I go back to when Susan came from LA. Uh, I met her husband, Mike, in LA uh, back in a long time ago. And then Susan and Mike came and uh, were at the SCS office, and I got to know him. We weren't always on the same side in the political divisions in that great org organization, Students for Democratic Society, but over time and many years, a number of us have grown to uh, love each other and to hang out together. And Sue is one of those people. So how are you doing, Sue? I'm doing okay. It's been a, a sad, um, losing our good friend, Timothy Black. There's a little bit of sound distortion there. Are you, are you set now? Is your I think so. Good. Okay. So you've been I, dealing I with to send an IT person here to manage me. I don't know what I'm doing. Okay. You're okay, but tell us a little bit about Timuel Black. I know that you're dealing with memorials and funerals and all that kind of stuff, but you did write a book with Timuel and you might want to share a little information on the book too. Well, Timuel D. Black was a uh, retired as an emeritus professor of social sciences at the city colleges of Chicago and before that, a long career teaching social studies uh, in the Chicago public schools, in high schools on the South Side. And before that, in Gary, Indiana. And before that, always, since he was like 13 years old, a labor organizer, a militant activist, an appreciator of jazz, a veteran of the Second World War, a decorated veteran in the Second World War. But except for the time that he was overseas during the war and for brief travels throughout his career, Tim Black lived in the same neighborhood on the south side of Chicago his entire life from the age of one year in 1919 when the family arrived in Chicago from Alabama until his demise last week. When he came back from the Second World War in 1944, he really basically never left Chicago again, except for trips. I mean, he never moved anywhere else and he never moved out of the neighborhood where he grew up as a child. He could walk through the neighborhood with you and show you all the apartments his family had lived in, uh, what all the buildings were and who lived in them in Bronzeville, Woodlawn and so on. Susan Klonsky, when did you meet uh... Dr. Timuel Black, and what was the what was the moment? What was the cause that you were both uh, working on when that happened? And, uh, I first met, I first heard him speak 
at a voter registration training for, in 1982 for the impending campaign for mayor of Harold Washington, who was his good friend since his college days. They were both at Roosevelt University on the GI Bill uh, after coming home from serving in the, in the Second World War. And so that would have been in about, I wanna say late 1982, but I can't put an exact date on it. And then we worked together in the College of Education at the Small Schools Workshop at UIC in the 90s through about early like 2002 or so, because after he retired, he never really retired. He kept working for Chicago public school reform and we worked closely together during that. What is the book that you wrote together? Uh, so um, Tim is famous for an enormous anthology of oral histories of black South side families and individuals who were part of the great migration from the Southern United States who came to Chicago and settled here after the first in the period after World War One and during and after World War II, two great waves of migration. And these books are called Bridges of Memory, but he had never told his own life story until quite late in life after he turned 90. And that book, which I got to work on with him was is called Sacred Ground, the Chicago Streets of Timuel Black. And that's much of, but certainly not a comprehensive look at his own life story. I first met Timuel Black um, when uh, he came and would speak to our students on the urban studies program. So I'm amazed to find out I, I actually might have known him a couple of years before you met him, but our actual getting to know one another happened at the same time working on the Washington campaign in 82, 83. And then um, we were together uh, when the favorite son delegation for Harold Washington went to the Democratic Convention in San Francisco in 84. And that's also when I got to know Zenobia and Bid Wist. Zenobia, his wife. Yeah, yeah. I have one little story about Tim. I, I mostly ran into him at uh, your house or at uh, when Chewy announced uh, his run for mayor. Uh, a number of times I spent a little time talking to him, but I have an adopted brother who is African-American, the late Jim Arden, who uh, throughout his life did scrapbooks. And he was he had a big scrapbook on Joe Lewis and was knew all kinds of things about Joe Lewis and talked about doing a book. And he came to Chicago and visited. And we had set up uh, a meeting with Tim, Timuel. And uh, we went to the South Side and picked Timuel up. And I'm driving around with a video camera. And he's telling us stories about Joe Lewis when he fought at the amphitheater. And he walked from the amphitheater to this place, I think somewhere near Hyde Park. And he drove around and showed us different places that Joe Lewis lived and told stories. And I'm looking for that uh, tape or that CD that I have somewhere. But he was a pretty warm guy. I didn't know him well. Uh, but every time I chatted with him, he was uh, not only interesting, but uh, fun to be around. Well, if you look at the book, Sacred Ground, his memoir, there's a couple of stories in there about what it was like in the neighborhood. 
on the night of the Lewis Schmeling fight, and then subsequently in the, against Braddock when he won, and about people dancing in the streets and weeping for joy. Yeah. It's quite lovely. And you know, that's the most amazing thing. It's, it's great to remember uh, a scene like that. But when you mentioned earlier, his family arrived in Chicago in 1919, um, the year of the uh, incredible race riot that lasted for four or five days. Um, I'm not sure if they arrived before that happened or after. Um, um, a month after, and they came anyway. And they came anyway. Well, because what they were getting away from was exactly. equally, if not more dangerous. Exactly. And this is the thing that I'm, the man witnessed what he witnessed where he grew up. He went into the army and witnessed and experienced not only uh, Buchenwald and everything before that, the Battle of the Bulge and, and other important dates that he was part of, but also experiencing the racism of the military that was rampant in World War II, coming back to Chicago, most segregated city in the North. And, and yet he had the best attitude always. In, in my observation of him, he was always uh, ready to grasp what is the next thing to do or the topic we should talk about that makes the most difference. Um, solutions, always looking for and drawing that out of students. He, he was a, a wonderful soul, a wonderful person. So what's your most fond memory of Tim or what's the most important thing people should remember about him? Well, one thing on the personal level, I have great fondness for him. He's a lot has been said about how he completely was single-minded and persevering and sort of never believed in giving up and slacking off or just making his own deal and getting a big job with the city or something like that. He never did that. But uh, he also was an incredibly charismatic individual. Very, he had a very warm personality. And I would go out with him to have a cup of coffee and conduct an interview with him on some topic or another. And it was impossible because every couple of minutes, someone would come up to him and say, Mr. Black, Mr. Black, it's me, Larry. I, you were my homeroom teacher in 1966. And he would unfailingly embrace them, shake their hand and act like he totally knew who they were. But the last time he saw that guy, Larry, Larry was 17 and now Larry is like 57 and does not look like a 17 year old. There's no way he could recognize them. But he always asked them, what are you doing with your life? How's your family? Um, and he would remember stuff about them. And he has had teachers, I mean, students, pardon me, from the city colleges and from Hyde Park High School, DuSable High School and Farragut where he taught for quite a while. Right who remembered him and stayed in touch with him for their whole adult lives. And we've had such an outpouring of remembrance from individuals like that over the last week. It's in, since it was announced that he was ailing and in hospice care, mm -hmm. a, a, a thousand or more people. It's quite amazing. And he had a, he had a Facebook uh, a fund me page. I understand. So some, some of, some of the friends of the family realizing that, um, there was a dire need for nursing support around the clock and other end of life care 
and expenses that the family simply had no um, preparation for. They did a GoFundMe thing. We expected, a, you know, enough to enough to barely make it, but instead it was like astonishingly effective. And in three days, a huge amount of donations came in, and it was very gratifying. And he, of course was unaware of it or he would never have agreed to that. I bet. <laughs> Before we leave, um, there is going to be a public uh, memorial. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us any information yeah. about that? I can tell you two things that are important. Uh, there's a visitation that's taking place right now until 7 p.m. at A.A. Rayner's Funeral Home at 318 East 71st Street. However, um, depending on where you are, it's probably that was Thursday night, Friday morning, there's a private funeral at his church in Hyde Park. Senator Durbin and Mayor Lightfoot and President Preckwinkle will all be speaking at that as well as he will be eulogized by Father Michael Flager. And there's is some of his former students and oldest friends. Um, uh, and then on December the 5th, there will be a large public gathering in the afternoon at Rockefeller Chapel on the campus of the University of Chicago. And I'm sorry to say, I can't give you the exact time details right now. We'll, we'll get and, it. And I know that the funeral, which is taking place on the 22nd of October, will be recorded and live streamed. And that you will, if anyone wants to virtually attend it or watch it retrospectively, they can go on YouTube to the Groundswell Educational Films channel. Groundswell's channel will carry the funeral service. Thank you so much, Sue, for being available to us in this week of remembering and helping send him off and his transition. I know it's an emotional time for all Thank of you. Remembering Timuel Black, he was really a, the one of the great sons of Chicago, and I'm so grateful to have known him. Me too. Thank you, Sue, and all of you. Uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back with a little bit more of live from the Heartland. But first, we're going to listen to Reverend Baird and the Youth for Christ Choir <laughs> doing "Like a Ship Without a Sail." And remember, if you like gospel music, and even if you don't, you'll grow to love it. Following our show is Bob Maravich, the blue-eyed soul child, coming on with gospel memories. So I picked this song, Like a Ship Without a Sail, leading into the show that follows us. We'll be right back. Enjoy.
ship without a sail. I love that tune. That's a great album. That's once again, Reverend Barrett and the Youth for Christ Choir. You can hear a lot of gospel on the Bob Maravich show, which follows us. Um, I don't have a lot of other announcements. I've usually the sports report uh, comes at the end, like you used to read the sports news on the back of a newspaper. We have it at the end of the show, but we did a lot of sports today. Let's just say that the Bulls and the Hawks have both started their season. The Hawks are down zero to four and the, the Bulls won their first game. Uh, next week, we encourage you all to uh, maybe send us at our Facebook site, the Live from the Heartland Facebook site, a little bit of uh, things about the Day of the Dead, how you celebrate it and uh, memories you would like to share. Um, we want to thank you all for tuning in to Live from the Heartland. As you know, we've been bringing you this show for many, many years. Uh, it's broadcast on Saturday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Central Time. You can get it anywhere in the world at WLUW.org. You can get it locally at on the FM at 88.7. Um, a couple days after that, we will put it up on YouTube.com slash Heartland Media, where you can see hundreds and hundreds of segments of this show that we've done over many, many years. We're also uh, now on CAN-TV and we're, uh, if you go to Spotify or you go to Google Podcast, you can get us there. We wanna thank our team. We've got uh, Luis Mejia down there in Veracruz. Thank you, Luis. We have Lim Orman Weiss. We're always looking for volunteers, people who wanna help us uh, record, help us put it up many, many things. We're going to expand the show. We encourage you to do good in the world because the world needs all the good that all of us do. All power to the people and we'll take you out once again with Twin Peaks doing our world. Have a great week and do keep doing good in the world.